0: You're listening to Technically 200, a podcast featuring the stories of amazing Black and Latina women in STEM. This season, in honor of Mother's Day, we are highlighting the powerful stories of Black and Latina mothers in STEM. Stay tuned each week for these roundtable conversations as we learn more about the inspirational and authentic experiences of Black and Latina moms, not only making it happen for their families, but for the entire STEM ecosystem. We are back with another episode of Technically 200, a podcast about Black and Latino women in STEM, and I'm your host, Matt Stevenson, and as always, we have illustrious guests over the moon to welcome uh, Dr. Lakeisha Batts. She is the creator of Science Unlimited, LLC as well as Dr. Lori Banks. She is an assistant professor of biology at Bates College. And as you know, this season, season three of Technically 200, we are speaking to Black and Latina moms in STEM. So welcome Dr. Banks and Dr. Betts.
1: Thank,
0: Thank you. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Absolutely. I'm so, hey, I'm excited. So tell us, how do you all know each other?
1: Ooh, I let Dr. Batts take that one. She has a, a lovely version of our story.
2: <laughs> so, um, I met Dr. Banks, of course, before she was Dr. Banks. We were, uh, <laughs> we were just graduate students at, at Baylor College of Medicine, and I can't even remember the class, but there were a group of us that had come in in, um, in a program, and I remember after class. She, we were, we were talking about the assignments or just about the information and she comes up to us and she's like, Hey y'all. And you have to understand, um, I'm short and I'm, I'm, I'm a petite person. Dr. Banks is not. And so <laughs> I had to look up at her <laughs> It's like, well, who's that? <laughs> and so, and I, you know, you don't want to be rude, but you're just like, hi, how are you? And so that's how we met. Um, she just came into the circle and said, hey, how y'all doing? And so, um, you know, in Texas, we are friendly, we really are, but it was just so, you know, you look up and you're like, okay, I gotta keep going. And so, but at, she, we, we bonded over science um, and helping each other out during, you know, grad school at Baylor is very different than grad schools in other places because you do your coursework in one year. Um, so it's like 10 week terms and it's quick, it's quick. And if you miss a beat, (laughs) you may miss the whole class and have to repeat which you
1: don't want to do. I had actually come in the year that Dr. Batts took that class. Um, I was actually a post-baccalaureate fellow. Um, so it was like before my actual third year of graduate school. Um, and so I was excited to see potential allies in the class, um, because I wasn't even like a real graduate student yet. Um, and so to have walked in the classroom and to have seen sort of a group of people who looked like they had formed community already, it was like, I look like you guys, let's let's roll with this. Which is why I was so excited to see them.
0: <laughs> was there, you know, and and that excitement of finding someone else who, who looks like you and having that sense of belonging, was that something that Baylor was being intentional about or, or was this just happenstance that you all found uh, some other Black folks who were in the College of Medicine?
2: Um, that was intentional. So our dean, our assistant dean, Gail Slaughter was uh, tapped to write diversity grant. So NIH was like, we want you to write this particular grant. And at that time, what was over the course of several years? um, They were very intentional about increasing the number of um, underrepresented minorities um, into the, into the um, graduate school of biomedical sciences, so I mean, we ranged, you know, it was a range of um, persons of color that were there, and so, and there was another program. I let Dr. Banks talk about that. That it kind of we all kind of meshed together, and so, yeah, I mean, it was very intentional by <laughs> a particular person in the in the institution to make Baylor that kind of, you know, that that predominantly I could say white institution that had a high number of Um, highly trained, um, you know, persons of color that were coming out of there.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So that on the graduate student side, even, um, you know, sort of before that on the post-baccalaureate fellowship side, um, there were programs under uh, Gail Slaughter, um, but another one out of the Genome Center um, under uh, Dr. Deborah Murray, uh, which is the program I came through. Um, that focused on not just bringing in, you know, a more representative group uh, within the early trainees to help them apply to PhD granting programs and successfully matriculate through those, um, but more specifically had uh, memorandums of understanding with local HBCUs. Um, And so Dr. Murray being an alumna of Prairie View A&M University, uh, she had ties there. Um, and so she had a connection to bring some others of us who were coming out of Prairie View um, into Baylor to consider research careers. So from the post back side, we had both the ones in the graduate school and the ones in the Genome Center. Um, and several of us out of those programs
0: ended up being graduate students. That's, that's I love the intentionality behind building this community of support. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't imagine for myself where, where I would be had I not had a sense of there being people in my field of choice who were interested in my success and invested in, in my success. So can you talk about, in your own respective work, what you're doing right now? that helps to facilitate that community of support around, in particular, uh, these up and coming STEM professionals of color, the folks who are looking to be where you are in just a few short years.
1: So in my current role as a uh, tenure track assistant professor, um, mostly what I do uh, in addition to teaching, which is a portion of my time, um, is laboratory mentorship of students who are undergraduate researchers. So they come into my laboratory between classes. I have five of them that are coming to my lab this summer. Um, But you know, it's my little nerd army. Um, And one of the things that I think um, is beneficial for me at this stage, having had those experiences, is that I know, and have, you know, lived experience with what it means to be a good manager. Um, And so I really take my job seriously uh, in thinking about the kind of environment that I create for them. Um, You know, even small things you wouldn't even think about, like if you have an experiment that runs for three hours and you have to be there, you might not make it to the cafeteria during the time that it's open, depending on how your class schedule falls. So one thing I've intentionally done was set up like a snack station in my office for them to have resources where they can do what they need to do to be able to focus on the science um, and not have to worry about some of the other environmental factors that typically pull us away. Um, and, you know, the other thing, too, is the managerial development and skills and things to make sure that especially my female student's my first gen students and my underrepresented students, you know have an environment where I show them that you can succeed without being put down. You can succeed without the microaggressions. You can succeed, <laughs> you know when the space is caring and supportive and beautiful, um, that your neurons actually work better uh, in those circumstances so that they have a chance to really love the science. Uh, before they get out there into the world. And people are like, you know, you're not a dedicated scientist unless you bathe once a week or something, which I think is crazy. But yeah.
0: Did you just say uh, unless you bathe only once a week? Is is, is that
1: right? (laughs) Yes, there is. And Dr. Bass could attest to this. Um,
0: You know, especially
1: the environment we come from. You know, there was this kind of stereotype that, you know, you have to suffer for your science and the less of a life that you have and the less that you pay attention to your family and the more that you, you know, shun having romantic relationships, you know, like the more dedicated and the more serious of a scientist you are. And not only do we categorically reject that, but, you know, at this stage of the game now where we're able to influence, like you said, those that are coming after us, Um, I'm just here to let them know that that's, you know, not accurate at all.
0: There, there does seem to be this, you know, glorification of, of struggling in, in academia. Right. I, I, myself, I don't talk about this often, but I was in a PhD program myself and I left after I left halfway through the second semester because I said, this is not the type of life I want to have. I mean, I didn't understand how anyone was supposed to have a no, I saw that look, Dr. Bats. It's okay. It'll be all right. I'm doing all right. No, no. <laughs> I this, this is the reason why like we do heart. what we do.
2: <laughs> I just want to hug you right now. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. But no, no, no.
0: <laughs> it's okay. It's, I, I am so much happier and I feel like I've got so much more of an impact that I can have doing what we do with Code to College, which we could talk about later. But um I didn't understand. I mean, part of the problem was I was doing this in Miami. So I was a hop, skip and a jump away from South Beach. And you're going to tell me um, I've got to stay in the library all night. It was it was very difficult. It's not a great place to to pursue a doctorate. How do you have so you're you're, you're saying that this is popular and that this is something that we need to work against? How do you have a social life um, or any life outside of? pursuing this degree in, in your science.
2: Well, I guess I'll take that one. I'll take that one. So not only did I go to grad school, but my husband was there, and we had a we had a kid our second year. Um it's a very delicate balance. Um as we had we had support um his parents were close by. So when there were times where we had to really dig down, we we're having what committee meetings and the presentations had to be put together. We could, you know, take her and say, "Hey, can you take the kid for like the week <laughs> so we can focus?" But um, having mentors that are understanding um, is is key. Um, not, I guess, I'll say, mentors that come in three different fashions: those that get it, those who don't get it, and those who do not want to get it. Um, <laughs> It, it, it becomes one of those things. Choose, you have to be choosy. Um, you have to look at their life. You have to and, and envision if, if, that's, if they are spending all of their time doing one thing and that's, that's what they're going to expect of you. And I think some of us, um, and it, it is, I don't want to say it's a crapshoot because sometimes things change in a laboratory. I mean, that definitely happened to me. But my husband's boss was really, really uh, good at the mentorship and supported a lot of the people, especially the women and mothers in his lab. Um, He was an older mentor, so he was established and tenured. Mom's a little younger, but I did find solace there in mentorship by marriage. We'll say I was was in his lab by marriage where I didn't get um, that from other places. And the other thing is, is that you have more than one mentor. So you have your primary mentor, but you also have what I call the other mentors that mentor you in a different way. And I had a safe space too. Um, like I said, this, the same dean in which brought us in her office and her office staff was our safe space. So we needed a place to just pull down the curtain and maybe cry or just breathe or just get a reality check. They were there in that capacity to provide that, that, that for us. And that is what a lot of other graduate students don't get. Um, and I realized we were in a very, very, very special place.
1: Yeah. And I will say, you know, um, of our um, classmate group, um, I think the only one in an academic research lab now uh, professionally, um, you have to just be very intentional. About the way that you construct your environment. um, And you do kind of have to treat it like the family business is the lab. Um, So, you know, there are definitely times where, um, you know, there are some things that I guess in a traditional sense, you know, I would be present for certain things like uh, with my kids. Uh, and my husband does those things, or we have a support network of friends and family and colleagues, you know, that step in uh, for some of those things sometimes to childcare. Um, but you just have to, you know, accept it for what it is, that it's not um, a standard nine-to-five job where sometimes the work will follow you. But, you know, when you can make those things fun, Um, that's really cool too. So it's not necessarily that the blurring of the family work, you know, compartmentalization is necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I have to go to a conference out in Bar Harbor later this summer and the family is following me out there and they're going to go check out lighthouses for a week. So, you know, it's not, again, it's not necessarily that it has to be a bad thing as long as you keep your priorities straight. You know, that's,
2: that's the key. Yeah. You have to have your priorities straight when you go in. And sometimes when you're young, that's that you don't quite have that together. Um, looking back, <laughs> people like, I I realize how much they manipulated that. But if I were to go back and do it late, like now, oh man, they would have a hard time with me. <laughs> but it makes you stronger. I mean, but I, I just, I had people that would like say things to me. I remember the moment in which I was like, I choose my family. Like I choose the priority to be here and not necessarily this science. I can do both, but I choose this because this is what makes me happy. And I, I feel like a good parent and a good wife in this capacity. So, you know, you make your choices and you don't look back.
0: Can you, can, you know, it's, it's, I've been uh, struggling with this, not struggling with this, but just um, thinking about this quite a bit myself lately, because I started out in finance. And so my hours were, you know, 80, 90 hours a week. And I was working Saturdays, usually working Sundays, but from home. And I think, you know, to your point, Dr. Batts, you there is this culture of, you know, we talked about the struggle, but there's also this culture of the hustle, where you have to, like, you have to earn your stripes. That was my focus. Was like, I've got to earn my stripes. I got to get my two years at the bank, and then, you know, you're invincible and and you know you've proven your worth, right? Um, but then, when does it stop? Because I, I think I, I've still continued to work and work and work and work and work, and I was talking to somebody about this the other day, that it took me all these years to realize that I don't wanna work until I retire. I wanna, f- I want to start winding down how much I work without sacrificing compensation. <laughs> well, okay. That's real.
2: Yeah. Okay. I So I am a, yeah, I'm a former uh, athlete, so this is the way i explain it so when i grew up in high school like magic johnson the lakers and the pistons like for real all right they got older but they played so much smarter they didn't rip and ramp and run up and down the court their stuff just became very accurate and intentional and that's what you have to do you have to look and say what do i want the quality of my life to look like do i want to hustle for the rest of my life do i want to be exhausted and it's okay to say no it is a complete sentence um and people will push you as long as you allow them but you can stop and say no that's not what i want that doesn't make me happy and i choose to play like magic and um (laughs) all those old school cats smarter not harder so delegation is key recognizing when something doesn't make me happy when it doesn't bring me joy um and structuring my life accordingly um you do get caught up in the hustle hustle. I have to do it. I have to do it like this and pushing, pushing, pushing. And then you realize you've missed a lot. Having children will make you slow down. I mean, I can say that for myself and, um, I create, I've created a life in which I can, I've learned that it doesn't have to be, it's not decided and, and, and with that one decision, that's it. It can ebb and flow and I can recreate myself. Um, you know, the idea that you stick with something for 20, 30 years and that's all you do, that's gone. It's out of the window. And so you can pivot and redo. And um, I have a, a a cousin. She's in her 70s and she went back to school and got a master's. I was like, okay, um, I can do it if I choose to do it. And so that's that's what makes it fun for me. What do I want, what do I want to be doing right now? And how does my family fit in that? And how can I have, you know, the nice? I can't. I, mean, I can't even call it a balance. It's just the the way I want to. The way I want it to look every day. So that's that's the thing that you do. You decide. I'm tired. I'm getting off this crazy wheel, and I'm not doing it no more. <laughs> what you say? Or what do I want to do? And then you go for that.
0: <laughs> well, so then then my question to Dr. Banks is, can you do that? I mean, or How do you or how do you do that when you have to balance that with publish, publish, publish as 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 a tenure track professor?
1: So I will say that, you know, many of us in this field are blessed yet cursed to be very detail, meticulous, you know, people Um, comes along, you know, with a little control freak. I got to admit that you got to let it go. Um, You have to be able to delegate to people. And one thing I tell my students all the time, too, is that, you know, as fascinated as we are with all of this biology and biochemistry and all of this stuff, we have to remember that we are not smart enough to divorce ourselves from that science. We are still governed by the same chemistry, physics, and biology that we study. And if you upset your neurons or your liver, (laughs) you know... Uh, they will go left on you. And when you are not kind to your body, it will break down sooner than you plan it to. Um, and it won't give you the genius moments that you're hoping to have when you're reviewing your data, when you are putting together an experiment in the laboratory, you're going to make you know, mistakes. You're going to have to reset stuff up. You're going to waste reagents. Um, You go ahead to start something over again. It took four hours to set up. Um, So rather than trying to just brute force everything, there are some things that require your attention. And part of setting up for that experiment is making sure that your brain is on straight. So you have to get enough sleep, you need to drink water, you need to exercise, you need to go do something fun, so that your neurons get a chance to breathe. And then you can go and when you're Nobel, right? Um, but if you don't do those things, then you will suffer and so
0: will your work. Man, we, we what do we gotta call this relaxed culture? I like that. Oh uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> relax culture. I love it. I mean,
0: I <laughs> need mentors like you that, that would say, like it's it's not a, it's not only okay to take a break, but you need to, to be at your best.
1: It doesn't work another way. I mean, like, you know, we can go read all the neuroscience and everything. And it says exactly that, that, you know, they've done all the sleep studies and all of that stuff. And you start having heart attacks and all kinds of stuff, like in a week. So, you know, that helps us understand that this culture that, you know, we've been raised in scientifically um, is not, sustainable. And we have data to support that it is not sustainable. So if we say we are data driven people, then we need to stop the foolishness.
0: So one thing I, I, I would love to circle back to Dr. Bats, you said that you and your husband, uh, or sorry, excuse me, I was going to say you and your husband got pregnant, but I, we don't know of a man who's gotten pregnant yet. So you got pregnant during. I carried
2: all that baby. Yes, you, I did.
0: I, I saw her. She did. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you, so you were pregnant during uh, graduate school. Was it also during uh pursuit of your PhD?
2: Yes. Year.
0: Okay. And so the, you are now, I mean, I think I've lost count, maybe the fourth or the fifth mom this season who that's been the case for. And I've now, I I can't, I've said it so much, I can't say it anymore that, um, man, there are far more women who are having children while they're pursuing their degree than I think most people realize. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to us about what that, and, and sorry, Dr. Banks, was that the same for you?
1: I was five months pregnant when I defended.
0: Okay, so can you both talk to talk to us about what what that looks like, and what, given that this is so prevalent, what some of our our younger moms and moms to be who are are pursuing their their graduate degrees, what they should be considering and, and thinking about right now.
2: Okay, so um, there are as a woman in in science and stem biology doesn't always play along um your health talking doesn't
0: about the field of biology we're talking about your your biology my
2: biology yes okay. your body doesn't always play fair and i was faced my husband and i were faced with some difficult choices very early on because of the stress um my body was like hey we got a problem <laughs> so Um, you know, my doctor was like, you can try, but if you wait, you may not. And we were faced with difficult choices very early on. And so we decided to go ahead and try. It didn't take long. Um, And I tell people all the time that um, she was, we, we call her the grad school baby. And so there was an army of aunties that were like, okay, you know, that was some of the village that came along, but it was For some mentors, it's accepted because it's a fact of life. It's what happens for others. They start to panic and they think that, you know, they they may call you unproductive because there are, you can't move as fast. You know, for me, I was at the lab bench with test tubes and um, pipettes and I could not sit straight. I had to sit to the side (laughs) because I, you know, I couldn't reach the bench that way, but Um, and I had a lot of complications, but I still managed to do what it is I had to do. Um, may not have been in the time that my mentor had liked, but life goes on. He's, he's all right. He'll be all right. (laughs) And that's, and that's the way I looked at it. I was like, I made the decision not to sacrifice my idea and my want and desire to have a family for someone's science. It just didn't, it just didn't add up to me. It was, it was not easy. But we, like I said, we did have a lot of support. It just was, you know, my husband's family was here um, and I had uh, Dr. Banks and them were here. And so I got, you know, support um, as a mom, as a woman. And, you know, sometimes, you know, there is uh, something awesome about having a baby attached to you and then somebody just taking that baby and just bouncing that baby for you. You're like, I'm free. I'm free for the next two hours. And that's just amazing and wonderful. Um, Like I said, it was, it was, it's life. Um, I know that women in the workforce, I won't say is a new thing, but you know, after World War II, we had to go to work. And so in academia, it's still kind of old school. It just is. Um, and so the things that need to change to support moms and, and getting PhDs, they in some places, in some ways they're changing. I think we, we had, <laughs> our lactation uh space was in a bathroom and it was like across i felt like in hidden figures i had to go across a couple buildings to go to go there but things have changed and developed out of necessity now so you know then now there's actual rooms and it's not in the restroom in a stall that kind of thing so (sighs) you just push forward you go for what you want it makes you stronger it just does um It is what it is. I didn't work traditional hours. I came, I only worked like overnight when I was really pushing to get out. I get there at nine, but I was highly efficient, highly, highly efficient with it. Like my boss would be like, did you do that? Yeah. And I I sat down and I planned my experiments to get maximal output and, you know, But I was a tech beforehand, before I actually went to graduate school. So that actually helped, you know, teching and making solutions, that actually helps you become very, very astute in the lab. And so regular, you know, graduate students that didn't have that experience didn't understand why I would sit at my desk and I'd write it out. And I could plan it out and I'd take my time. And I didn't have to do trillions of experiments. I could do like a good three and I'd have so much data to, to mine through. So... I think, I think I covered everything. (laughs) Yeah, gosh. Um, I have to say I had a very different
1: experience. Um, even though I was at the end of my graduate school tenure, um, and I have a very different viewpoint now, um, than I did at the time when I was, um, found out I was expecting my daughter, um, There was a a significantly bad situation that I had witnessed uh, in my lab where we had a senior technician who came in. She hadn't been with us very long, but had special needs children. And although that was, you know, sort of discussed and again, not that it's actually even legal to consider these things when hiring people, Uh, At some point, the needs of the children, even though this lady was tag teaming, you know, this your turn, this my turn uh, with her husband, um, the needs of the children ended up being like not compatible with the job. And the lady was asked to resign. Um, So having watched that and having watched some of my other classmates, um, decide to start families, which was completely normal. These are like, you know, even in the most conservative sense, married people in their, you know, mid to late 20s who had completed at least one college degree and were self-sufficient. So it's not, you know, any kind of, you know, anybody walking down the street just decide to have a baby and, you know, 15 or whatever. Like, it's not even under the most conservative circumstances, like a bad thing, except that we were all in graduate school, and that seemed to be this problem. So having witnessed all of those, I knew I was pregnant um, about, yeah, like five months before I defended and, you know, kind of had a contentious situation um, going into my defense as well, where I was under pressure to have extended my timeline in the lab, even though it was pushing toward the seven-year mark. But because I just put my foot down and said, no, this is not acceptable, we need to get this paper out now, and you need to let me go get this job, Um, I actually hid my pregnancy until the last slide of my thesis defense. That was how my entire department found out that I was pregnant. Um, But those five months that I was in the lab, granted, I was mostly writing my dissertation. Um, I had people carrying rotors for me, um, you know, and it was sort of like an underground network of people I knew on the floor that were helping me with stuff. Um, Or if it was a bad morning sickness day, I'd go hide in the library with my, um, I had like a, a 12 pack of Sprite and some crackers and I snuck in there with me. Um, I was using the recovery rooms, that the medical students use if I had to go take a nap and I would set up an experiment and go take a nap and it'd be done by the time I came back. Um, but I, I did it kind of covertly. And then, like I said, I went through the entire, you know, I, I was showing and everything too, but wore baggy clothes. Uh, the last slide of my thesis defense had the little sonic picture on there And everybody's face was like, wait, she's pregnant? (laughs) Um, So, you know, based on the circumstances then, I felt like, you know, I did what I had to do to get through and not be judged unnecessarily uh, for something that, of course, had absolutely nothing to do with how good of a scientist I was. Um, But had I had the same sense of self, the same... Uh, sense of agency in my own destiny uh, and knowing that even though those people were there to assess my scientific worthiness, kind of, um, I probably would have had different words for them.
0: Man, that's, I mean, as as inspiring, it's, it's as inspiring as it's maddening that that would have been your your experience. I will say, though, credit to you, that feel, I mean, if we're still on the sports analogies, that feels like an N1 to have a sonogram on your last (laughs) one. It was like
1: the ultimate mic drop. You could have heard a pin drop. It was a big, like, medical school auditorium full of people, too.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. They were just
1: like, wait, what?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean that that is that is beautiful so how do how do we how do we make this change because I think from my vantage point I feel like the corporate sector has been changing incrementally but academia we know generally changes at a glacial pace so I mean what is it and, and it's also not as though I mean well, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, because if you've got a market leader, so say if we're talking about financial services, if there's something that Goldman Sachs does, there's a pretty good chance that the other banks are going to fall in line. Or if there's, if we're talking about, you know, um, CPG, if if Johnson and Johnson does it, there there's a greater likelihood that other CPGs are going to fall in line. What does that look like in academia? Is that a leading institution uh, and even, and even then it's, it feel, it still feels disintermediated, right? Because then we're talking about specific disciplines and we're talking about geographic differences. So how do we, how do we make, how do we make significant change for moms in academia?
2: For, for us, I will say my experience as a postdoc was completely different. Um, I had a very, um, very, very great postdoctoral experience where I was welcomed with open arms and my experience as a mom was not an issue. Um, there has to be a critical mass of mentors that are not just focused on the science but the whole person um, much like we do in the corp- you know you, you know the corporate settings where they focus on the whole individual, you know, like, well, here, we want you to do this job, but we're gonna provide these tools for you to have a balance and it's okay to be pregnant. It is okay. We're gonna support you if you wanna adopt a child, like those types of things have to happen. But in academia with the structure, it's not just the institution itself for our experience. And I'll, well, I'll speak to mine in the way our graduate school situation was set up. It's lab specific. Um, what what will happen eventually is that the those that go into laboratories will become smarter about where they go. Like there's a there's an unwritten rule. You know, we talk about you kind of stay away from the labs where the people don't have tenure because they're pushing, pushing, pushing. Sorry, Lori. Sorry, <laughs> not to honest, I'm sorry. But you kind of um, there's certain. You, you want somebody that has tenure, but is still kind of in the game and still mentoring. So there's this ebb and flow and you have to be very strategic about speaking to the postdocs and the graduate students, like away from the lab, you know, like let's, let's go to coffee off campus. Let's talk for real, you know, let's talk about the culture in the laboratory. And I have found that people are very genuine and honest and it is like a brand spanking no you say no and you run. You're like, do I need to come? They're like, they may, <laughs> or they may give you clues about what you should think about, or questions you should ask. And so, people, you know, I have found that they won't pull you into some craziness. Uh, they will tell you to stay away. And and for an investigator to not have a steady flow of graduate students, especially at ours, ours where Baylor was very graduate student heavy so like we came in as heavy hitters and acting almost like postdocs like that's the kind of way we were trained so it was like really in research and heavy and you know you had to ask the questions you could ask certain certain professors certain administrators would tell you certain things they would tell you stay away from your lab you sure you want to do that and you start thinking it's like okay you're trying to tell me something and they'll say go ask this person (laughs) so oh this is this person experience in this lab and that's what they would tell you so you have to be savvy but it has to change from the top um having individuals like dr banks is um i had the pleasure of of uh being in her lab and experiencing things to help out a little bit (laughs) and the culture oh my gosh if my graduate student life was like her lab oh my i probably would have never left like it was so awesome <laughs> to go back and just feel so comfortable play the music i wanted to play and completely be myself in her lab like that was amazing was just totally amazing so the students that come through her lab are just gonna be amazing and awesome
1: yeah uh i think one way that you know those of us who have seen what it's like to be under some of these investigators who had minimal managerial experience or training. Um, You know, they just gave the labs to the people that could pipette the fastest and had may or may not have had people skills. Um, You know, we can take those experiences and try to use those testimonies as a way to sort of bless other people, right? And that's definitely one thing I'm um, trying to do in my own lab, as, as Dr. Batts has said, right? Um, but I think that on a like, field level or on a professional level, the information is actually there. Uh, the NIH has done studies. Uh, the National Science Foundation has done studies. There were um, actually almost lawsuits at Princeton Uh, from some of the female uh, STEM professors there back in the 90s, right, about the kinds of institutional support that they wanted um, and were able to, you know, put like a white paper together to uh, send to the administration and the board of trustees saying, hey, these are the things that we are in need of and don't have but are being provided to our male counterparts or things that would help us, you know, in the area of parental support, those kinds of things. Um, Thankfully, their institution listened and they put some of those in place like an on-campus daycare. Um, And once they put some of those things into place, you know, they now have documented evidence that they have more Um, female faculty who are getting tenure at that institution. So it's not really like a question of what we need to do. It's just, are the institutions who are in the place to make those decisions going to buck up and do it? Or are they going to say, well, you know, this is the way that we've always done it in the ivory tower. You need to change who you are in order to be successful in our universe Um, rather than, you know, kind of paying lip service to some of these diversity initiatives that they have going on where they say that they want more female faculty. They say that they want more people of color, um, but, you know, they're not providing an institutional environment that is supportive of those people, you know, because it's, you're not filling just like a tenure track position. You have somebody that's coming in possibly with family members, whatever, you need that person, that human, to be successful in that environment. So if you bring them in, knowing that you don't have the capital to support them as a human being,
0: then you setting yourself up for failure. They, they already have what they need to make the change. They need to just execute and make the that. Change. That's all that that's is. It. Yep. That's it. Um, Ladies, I I truly appreciate all of your time and insights. I have learned so much, but before we end, we have three questions that we love to uh, ask our guests to wrap up, but you only have 10 seconds per question, total, not each, uh, to answer those questions. So let me know when you're ready. (sighs) Okay.
2: (laughs) All
0: right, here we go. Favorite dish to be cooked for you, not by you, for you?
1: My aunt's oxtails.
0: Oh, all right. We got some competitors here. All right. We should play Family Feud together. Next question. (laughs) Next question is favorite 90s song?
1: BBD Poison, even though that's 89, but whatever. The album came out in '90.
2: Anything by Tony, Tony Tony.
0: All right. I'm going to have to hit up Spotify right after this. And so final question, the one piece of advice that you would give to an employer of academians, acad- academicians, academians? which ones?
1: I think it can be either.
0: Okay. Let's go with that. Either. Um, <laughs> those in academia, um, with children uh so the one piece of advice that you would give for an employer of academians with children
1: there's just got to be one i'm gonna go
0: with on-site daycare
2: <laughs> i was like that's it because that's what i needed I, i'm with her on-site daycare
0: that's it on-site yep. daycare it's a must yeah
2: subsidize subsidize on on-site daycare. even better yeah.
0: even better I mean, and then that's it. This usually takes a little bit longer, but (laughs) Dr. Lakeisha Batts, Dr. Lori Banks, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, It was a pleasure speaking with you both. And I cannot wait for the people to hear this episode. You, You both are truly amazing. So thank you. Thanks again for listening to today's Technically 200 episode. Don't forget to subscribe and visit us at technically200.com.